All right. Well, last week, as most of you know, we finished up the book of Philippians and um, through the summer. What I want to do is spend some time in the Psalms uh, just to kind of tie us over a little bit. I've got four weeks until we go on vacation. Um, Really looking excited. Phil Gusky is going to preach and Ryan McDowell is going to preach while I'm gone for vacation. Uh, Just good to raise up other guys. I'm excited for that. And, And then we'll do probably some more Psalms. And the summer and then starting the fall will be in Leviticus. So we're, we're doing some Psalms. I've already preached Psalm 1, as Ryan mentioned. So this morning we're starting Psalm 2. Next week will be Psalm 3 and then Psalm 4 and then Psalm 5. And just, just continue on just kind of with a, a handful of these uh, just to open up. I love preaching the Psalms because they're like a, a self-contained unit. And uh, I love preaching them because they really express the, the heart of God. I mean, that, that's what... Many of the Psalms teach, they teach us what life is like in relationship to the Lord through good times and bad. Um, you know, oftentimes we can think of Psalms as just praise. It, it is a lot of praise, but a lot of times it's doing the midst of agony and heartache. In fact, look at Psalm three next week. Psalm three, verse one. Oh, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there's no hope for deliverance in God. So just kind of a, a difficult time that David was going through. Um, David was, Scripture says, a man after God's own heart. Psalm 2 is a psalm of David. We find that in Acts chapter 4, verse 25. So we're going to catch God's heart here in Psalm verse 2. So if you haven't done so already, I invite, invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm chapter 2. This, by the way, is one of my favorite psalms. Maybe because when I, I read through the scriptures, it's one of the first psalms that you, you look at. So I'm kind of familiar with it, um, know what it's about. It's one of the most quoted psalms in the New Testament, perhaps more quoted than anything else, except maybe Psalm 110. Some debate about what exactly you call a quote in some of the New Testament passages. But, but I, I love it because it sets forth the reality of this world. It sets forth the, the world in proper perspective. Rebelling against the Lord. It sets forth God in proper perspective with all things under control. It it puts Jesus in proper perspective as the coming king and gives us an invitation of hope. Bowing to King Jesus. Those four themes. I, I, I hope as I read through it here this morning, you can catch it. The world rebelling, God reigning, Jesus coming and a response of hope. Let me just read it. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and you shall shatter them like earthenware. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the son that he not become angry and you perish in the way. 
for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now, most every Bible translation that I consulted this week divides this psalm into four different sections. Each section has three verses each. Each of them have a, have a different voice, if you will. One is the voice of the nations, verses 1 through 3, as we look at things upon the earth. The second section is the voice of, of God the Father, verses 4 through 6. The third section is the, the voice of the Son, giving His testimony. And the fourth section is the voice, some say, of the Holy Spirit. The idea of that is just an invitation given, a warning given. Let's look at each of these sections. First, first one, I'm just calling this the scene that takes place. Four scenes on earth. Earth is my first point. Here we go. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. There you see, it's, it's on earth. It's talking about the nations. It's talking about the peoples, verse 1. It's talking about the kings of the earth. talking about the rulers of the earth. And how appropriate these words are for us today. They're written 3,000 years ago, and yet they're almost as if they could have been written yesterday. These are words of defiance, words of rebellion, words of hatred and hostility against the Lord. I mean, you can see it there right there in verse 2. The kings of the earth have taken their stand... And the rulers have counseled together against the Lord and against his anointed. The, the, the leaders are, are talking with one another and they are all firm in taking their stand against the Lord and his anointed. That is God, the father and God, the son, the anointed one. That's the Messiah, the Mashiach, the kings of the earth and the rulers of the land are standing opposed to the Lord. And they say this in verse three. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. These rulers and leaders see themselves bound in handcuffs or bound in ropes with, with nowhere to go or they just feel like they're, they're compelled and tied in by God. They feel prisoners to, under His rule and they want to get out of it. Like any criminal behind bars, they stew and they think and try to figure out how they can escape, how they can be free from the tyranny of the Lord, like a hostage taken captive and moving around, always looking for that opportunity to flee and to escape and get out of the bonds. And you say, well, how do they feel bound by the Lord? Well, they feel bound in their conscience. God has written his law upon their hearts. Romans two, verse 15. They feel bound by the moral codes of society and they hate them, not realizing, of course, as Hosea 11, verse four says that such things are bonds of love. But they want to get rid of these things. First John 5 verse 3 says that we, we love Him and we keep His commandments. His commandments are not burdensome. For a child of God, the commandments of God are not burdensome. They, are, they guide us and direct us into the blessed path. But for those who want nothing to do with God, they are, they are binding and they, they want to get rid of them. They want to escape God you want to escape his rules, his regulations. It's hard, though, to escape your own conscience, conscience, because God has written his law upon our hearts. So everyone knows in, intrinsically what is what is right and wrong. People know intrinsically that you should love your neighbor as yourself. People know intrinsically you should love the Lord your God with all their heart and soul and strength. But as it is, they set themselves against the Lord and against his name. They want to live with no restraint. That's what's happening here. Marv Rosenthal said it this way. The nations want no restraint. 
no absolutes, no standards, and above all, no accountability. They want to be able to say, I'm the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. Here, then, is the inevitable end of ages, long march towards the deification of man, script of all its camouflage in its raw, naked, prideful humanism. It is the pottery saying to the potter who has breathed into a breath of life, get lost, take a hike, God. We are not interested in what you are offering. We want to do it our way. And so has gone our nation. Just think about how we have systematically removed the mention of God from the public arena. And it's not entirely gone. There, there's still resemblance there. You can still find places where, it, where it's so. But people are working hard to remove God. Naturalistic evolution has taught us fact in most schools. Fifty years ago, prayer in schools was banned. Forty years ago, abortion became legal. For the past few decades, marriage has been on the decline. Divorce has been on the increase. In fact, many today aren't even bothering with marriage. I read this week that almost half of first babies in our country today are born to unwed mothers. It's all across the board. White, black, Hispanic, you put them all together. Almost half are out of wedlock today. And that's just the fruit of a nation whose believers and leaders are shaking their fists at God. Rulers are hate God and hate his influence upon the land. It's not only our nation, but you can look at other nations in the world. I mean, just even in last generation, the former Soviet Union, with its intense communism and atheism and, and trying to propagate everything for the common good. What do you think today of, of North Korea oppressing God? Vietnam. China, you think about Muslim worlds, Iran, Iraq. I, I told you last week about the troubles in, in Nepal, where Nepal used to be the only Hindu nation in the world. And uh, then they became a democracy maybe seven years ago, six years ago. I forget when exactly. It's been a disaster because they can't they, they haven't learned democratic ways. And you need to have an educated people to have democratic ways. So things have been really hard. And, and so these people have arisen called the Shiva army. Shiva is a Hindu god. The Shiva army is is uh, seeking to restore Nepal into a king, Hindu kingdom once again. And so even as I emailed my weekly word just this past week as they gathered for worship, Every Saturday, as they do, Friday night, our time, the Shiva army was ready and prepared to disrupt church services across the land because they don't want Christians there because they want a Hindu kingdom. This is nothing new. From the dawn of time, God's people have always known persecution, as Jesus said, right? From the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, what prophet did they not persecute? Righteous people are persecuted. Jeremiah was thrown into the pit. You read Hebrews 11 about the persecutions they faced. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. So Hebrews 11 says, but since even particularly here, the time of David, when, when the nations were plotting during his time, Nations have always been plotting and scheming against the Lord. They've been thinking of ways to defy Him. And in fact, that's the idea here of verse 1. The people are agitated. 
the nations are in this uproar and the people are like devising a, a, a vain thing as they, they plot and they scheme and they think this word translated devising a vain thing might be in your translation plotting an evil thing. It, it, it's the same word used in chapter one, verse two. But his delight is in the law of the Lord and in his law, he meditates day and night where 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 the godly man meditates on God's word day and night. These people day and night are plotting against the Lord, how they might rid themselves of his influence. And the the contrast couldn't be more stark about these these kings thinking badly and yet the righteous people thinking well upon God's word. There's no greater illustration of this than you see in the days of Jesus. You, you just cursory read the Gospels and you see that time and time again they're against Jesus. After Jesus healed the man with a withered hand, we read Mark chapter 3, verse 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. They began conspiring. They began thinking, here's this Jesus. Let's, let's get him. They frequently approach Jesus with questions, seeking to trap him in what he said. And as you read through the Gospels, you see that. He asked him this question, trying to trap him. Trying to trap him. Trying to get him to, to trip up. Right? Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Is it lawful to pay taxes? What about remarriage and the resurrection? What if you have multiple wives? How does that work out? What's the greatest commandment in the law? It says in Mark chapter 14, verse 1, the chief priests and the scribes seeking how to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. They were gathering together. They were devising this vain thing against God. And particularly think about Jesus came into the flesh. They were fulfilling exactly what verse 2 said against the Lord and against his Messiah. It's prophesied even before Jesus came that Messiah would be conspired against this was not lost, by the way, on the early church. Turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. It's one of the many places where this psalm is quoted in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 4, we see religious persecution arising in Peter and John in, in, in Jerusalem, in prison for proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. The, the religious leaders strongly opposed their preaching, so they had them imprisoned. And after a short trial, they warned them, speak no more to any man the name of Jesus. Then they released him. And we pick up the narrative in Acts chapter 4, verse 23. It says, when they had been released, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they lifted their voice to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you, right, sovereign one, the creator one, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, that's why we know Psalm 2 is, is of David. He wrote it. David, your servant, he quotes Psalm 2 right here. Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. The early church quoted Psalm 2 in their prayers, they knew what happened in those days. They knew the religious leaders had conspired against Jesus. They're quoting the scriptures back to the Lord, seeking his help in time of trouble. As Psalm 2, we will later see, says God's got everything under control. And they look for his sovereign majesty to help them. They go on to explain, verse 27, For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus 
whom you anointed. There's against the Lord, against his anointed one, who your Christ, they, you were against both Herod and Pontius Pilate were against Jesus, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. This is all the Gentiles, all the leaders, all the rulers were against them to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. You just even see right there, they're praying the sovereignty of God. None of this took God by surprise. In fact, verse 28, we see that all was under control, even when Jesus was captured and crucified. Herod, Pilate, Gentiles, Jews, it was all according to verse 28 says, whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Now, it may seem that things were out of control. And if any time things seem to be out of control, it's when the the anointed Messiah came to earth. God's perfect son came to redeem his people from their sins. And yet they hated him and put him to death. And yet God's plan carried on without a single hitch. Because, as verse 28 says, that they did whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And then they, they pleaded, God... You're in control of all things, so now take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence. While you extend your hand to heal, signs and wonders take place through the name of the Holy Servant, Jesus. And they prayed the place where they gathered together was shaken. They're all filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak the word of God with boldness. They looked to the sovereign Lord in times which things seemed out of control, but they weren't. They found their comfort in the sovereignty of God. So I point this out to you as well. You know, if you're one of those people who, who reads the news and is, is all current on conspiracies and cover ups and things are happening and, and get stirred and, and agitated and maybe laden with fear over the direction of our nation, over the, the godless path of our nation. And you're just really distraught over that. I just tell you that God is in control of the United States of America. Totally in control. He's in control of what's happening in the Middle East. What's happening in Iraq. He's in control of what's happening in Nepal. He's in control of our stock markets. He's in control of the kings of the earth. Take comfort. Proverbs 21.1 The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of a Lord. He turns it whichever way he wishes. God turns the king's heart wherever he wants. And the king's heart is exactly where God wants him to be. We can trust. That's what Psalm 2 is about. It just puts life and world in such a perspective. It says, yes, things are raging here, but God is sovereign and in control. It's not to say we shouldn't fight for righteous causes. We should fight for the cause of the unborn, for victims of human trafficking, for oppression of the poor. We should fight for those things, not just laissez-faire. Well, God's in control. No, that's not it. But, but in our fighting, we realize that there is a greater force beyond even what we can help in those places, but never, never come to despair about where the world's going, where our nation's going, where our city's going, with our filing debts, with our, our moral problems. Don't be in despair. God has got all things under control. We'll turn back to Psalm 2. We want to move to our second point. We've seen earth, earth, and we see rebellion on earth. Let's look at the scene in heaven, verses 4 through 6. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. 
Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I I love this scene. Despite everything that's happening on the earth, all the raging, all the scheming and all the bad stuff, you would never know it in heaven. Heaven is like a picture of calm and tranquility where earth is chaos and fighting. In fact, God is in heaven. He's watching it all and he finds it amusing. Imagine with me a little 10 year old boy who's a who's a big football fan. And uh, he loves the Chicago Bears. He loves the Chicago Bears right? because he's cheering for the best team in the National Football League. And he wants to do anything they can to help his team win. And so he studies and he thinks and he's got a play. He's been scheming this for months. He says the Packers are coming to downtown on such and such a date. And I know right where that team bus is going to roll up. And I know right where they're going to go into Soldier Field. I know right about when they're going to come. They always come, whatever, three hours before the game time. And I'm going to find, is it BJ Raji? Raji? Is, is that the guy's name? Yeah, Laura, is that the name, Phil? <laughs> you guys know you guys know the Packers better than I do. But, but Roger, this guy's like 320 pounds, okay, like all, a lot, a lot of fat, but a lot of muscle, okay? He is just a, a big dude. Uh, huh? <laughs> okay. So imagine his little 10-year-old pipsqueak, and he's got this, he's got this plan. He says he's going to pick a fight with, with Roger, 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 Roger. Raji, he's going to pick a fight with this guy and hopefully like get him to swing at him maybe or get in some kind of trouble. So he's got legal trouble so he can't come to the game and thereby help the, the Chicago Bears. OK, and so so picture picture these these Packers get off the bus and he spots his man and he runs up to him. You know, I mean, I don't know how tall he is, but the difference in height is going to be like this. This this little guy weighs some 70 pounds, as opposed to like 320. He starts calling him names. He starts making fun of his mother. He starts punching his leg. He starts he starts going at everything he can. And what's Roger going to say? Roger going to say? He's going to like, what are you doing, kid? And he'll just kind of push him off and just say, okay, can someone just take care of this this little the pest over here? And that was going to happen. And he'd probably laugh. Like, what are you doing? Little guy calling me names. What are you, I got a game to play. I can't. He doesn't even have time for that. Now, if he's in a particular feisty mood, he might take the guy with one hand, pick him up like this and say, what are you trying to do? Why don't you go back to your own home, you know, and put him down and let him go? He could. Well, I just say that's a little bit like what it's like with God. Only millions of times worse. Listen to some verses from Isaiah 40. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. So, so take my picture and rather than a 70, 70 pound little boy, I mean, I mean, picture this little ant, tiny ant rebelling against the Lord. But, but an ant's too heavy because it says that the nations are like a dust. It says, Isaiah 40, verse 17, all the nations are as nothing before him. They're regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. Meaning that just in the, the sovereignty and grandeur of God, the nations are like, they're like Zippo. 
Isaiah 40, verse 22, speaks how God sits above the circle of the earth. Its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. It is he who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes judges of the earth meaningless. God can squash all who take counsel against him in a moment. Psalm 115, verse 3, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. If he wants to smash any rebellion on the earth, he can smash it in a second. But at the moment, it's not what we see. God's patiently waiting. He laughs, not because he's got so much a, a sense of humor at this point, but because everything's under sovereign power. And puny man is vain in their resistance against the Lord. And it's right here, by the way, if we go back to verse 1, that we see and understand the first question. Why? Why are the nations raging so bad against the Lord? It is impossible to win. Why are they plotting in vain? It's impossible to overthrow the Lord. And yet, in their irrationality, they fight on. Because they follow their leader, Satan, who, though he is defeated, and though he knows he's defeated, though he knows he was defeated at the cross, he's going to go down fighting. God laughs, and as God laughs, he starts getting angry. We see that in verse 5. God's scoffing. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. You say, why is he angry? Because he made the world. And rather than loving God and serving God and worshiping God as he deserves, his creatures have gone astray. Right in the Ten Commandments themselves, God tells us, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And as his creatures turn against him, jealousy will come forth in his being and his anger will rise and judgment will come. In Romans 1.18, we read, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. In other words, the wrath of God, the anger of God is being poured out upon those who know the truth of God and suppress it in unrighteousness. He's created the world, made himself clear, but people have rejected him. So God has rejected them in Romans 1 by just letting them go in their sin. He said, that's the sin you want? <laughs> Carry on. Just face the consequence of that sin. That's the sin you want? Carry on. Let's face the consequences of that sin. You see that in Romans 1, verse 24, 26, and 28. It says, God gave them over. God gave them over. God gave them over. He just said, have your way. And we're facing some of those problems in our nation today. In Psalm 2, the judgment here doesn't come so much in just letting them go as opposed to establishing his king upon Zion. As the kings of the earth resist the reign of God in their lives, God will establish his own king to rule over those kings. The kings of the earth think there's something. Well, compared to this king who's sitting on the Mount Zion, right, where God rules his people, they are nothing. Which actually leads nicely into the next section here, because we're going to talk about this king that he installed upon Zion. He is the anointed one. He is the son of God. He is Jesus. We shall see. We've seen earth, verses one through three. We've seen heaven, verses four through six. And now we see coronation day. Here we see the installed king giving his take on the situation. He says in verse seven. 
This is Jesus talking, and you'll see this. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord, that decree which God has made, which will stand firm, which shall come to pass. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you give the nations as your inheritance. The very ends of the earth is your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and shall shatter them with earthenware. It's the son quoting the father. The father said, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now, the interesting question here is when did this take place? It may seem that it took place in eternity past when the roles of the Godhead were established. Perhaps. Some have been misled here by the terminology of begotten, that Jesus was begotten, like Jehovah Witnesses love this verse because it says, well, what happened was Jesus was begotten of the Father. The Father existed alone and then came the Son. But begotten, when it speaks of God, doesn't speak about creation as much as it speaks about substance. The Son and the Father are of both essence. They are both deity, both divine. Like when you beget a child, you get a child of your likeness. Jesus was not a created being. He was begotten of the Father, not created. In fact, that's what the Nicene Creed painfully sought to make clear. Nicene Creed, 325 A.D. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, of things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the begotten of God the Father, the only begotten, that is, of the essence of the Father. You see how they defined it? Begotten, that means of essence, right? The same substance. God of God, light of light, true God of true God, begotten and not made, of the very same nature of the Father, by whom all things came into being in heaven and earth, visible and invisible. And over and over, light of light, God of God, begotten, not created. So you say again, when did this take place? This take place in eternity past? Well, I think there's a better answer for that. Again, keep your finger here at Psalm 2. Let's find another place where it's quoted. It's quoted in Acts chapter 13. Let's look there. Acts chapter 13. This is the story of Paul's missionary journey. He was sent out from the church at Antioch, uh, north, of, um, north of Israel. They're sent out there. Acts 13 tells his first missionary journey, how they, they went across the Mediterranean Sea, how they traveled through the island of Cyprus, how they went up to this region called Pisidian, went up north some ways, I forget, maybe 15, 10, 20 miles, something like that, to this city called Antioch and Pisidian, Pisidian Antioch. And on the Sabbath day, they entered the synagogue, and at the request of the synagogue officials, they said, Brethren, you're visiting with us. Do you have anything to say? And Paul said, Yes, I have some things to say. And so beginning in verse 16, he begins to preach to them, talking about Israel. And then he turns to Jesus. And let's look at verse 32. Let's start there. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers, that God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that he raised up Jesus As it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now, I think what you see here is a little connection made with Psalm 2, verse 7, and the resurrection of Jesus. As the resurrection of Jesus is the time when he was installed as son, installed as king. That's not to say there wasn't a time before then that Jesus wasn't the son. Remember the baptism of Jesus? Jesus came up out of the water. God the Father said, what? This is my beloved Son. Or the transfiguration. God the Father said, this is my beloved Son. 
But Psalm 2 is in the context of coronation day. And I think what we do is we see a connection between him being established as the son begotten of the father as a, as a picture of his establishment of king on the earth. Romans 1 4 says this exact same thing. It says this. Jesus was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. It was the resurrection that verified and declared Jesus to be the son There was something about the resurrection and this announcement to the world about who Jesus is, that Jesus, by means of raising from the dead, is the son of God and he will rule and reign upon the earth. And and when we get even some further confirmation of this, you go to look at Acts 17 and you see this this idea of the resurrection from the dead and what it proclaims to the world. Paul is speaking to the intellectuals of the day on Mars Hill. He's speaking about the unknown God. He says, well, you worship in ignorance, I declare to you. And he gets to Jesus. And then finally, verse 30, he then says, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to all people everywhere that they should repent because why should they repent? He's fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Raising Jesus from the dead was proof to the world that he is the ruler of the world. He is the judge of the world. Indeed, that's where Psalm 2 is headed. I mean, that's the whole idea. Coronation day, the the day when Jesus becomes king or or establishes his kingdom, when he's ruling and reigning. In fact, go back here to Psalm 2. We're going to see the son quoting the father. And what he said, he says, ask of me and I will surely give the nations for your inheritance and the very ends of the earth is your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Jesus simply needed to ask the father and the world was his. These kings who hate the rule of God, verses one and two, will lose their power when the son of God comes to claim what is rightly his. It is the son who will inherit the earth. I think that's some of the idea of what it means that today I've begotten you. Today is the day in which you become the ruler and the king through resurrection is what I assume from the New Testament, how the New Testament interprets this verse. But it doesn't come without a fight. The fight comes in verse nine. You see it there, at least describes the forceful submission, which those who continue to rebel will be in. He says, you shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. This is ruling from a position of strength. The picture here is an iron. I, I wish I remembered today to bring some rebar. Right? That, that iron, whatever, half inch diameter kind of bars that you can kind of take like this and then bring a clay pot before you. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about earthenware. Earthenware shattered with a rod of iron. If I put up a, a clay pot here and took a big swing of it with my iron rebar, what would happen to that earthenware? It'd be done. It would shatter. Exactly right, Ruthie. It would be all over the place. The clay pot has no chance. So likewise, when Christ comes back to rule and reign, people of the earth have no chance. On three different occasions, verse 9 is quoted in the book of Revelation, describing Jesus coming to finally establish his rule and reign upon the earth. So in some regards, this isn't fully established. It hasn't been Fully fulfilled yet. Oh, maybe in the resurrection it was a bit. Maybe in the baptism and transfiguration it was. He declared that. But with finality, come the future time, it will. I want to read two of these verses for you. You can look them up later. Revelation 12, verse 5. 
And she gave birth to a son, a a male child, who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And there you see the idea that Jesus is going to rule with a rod of iron. Strength. The throne of God. Jesus being born. Eventually going to rule. Revelation 19. This is the the culmination of the the coming of Jesus when he comes to the white horse. And I saw heaven open and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it called faithful and true and in righteousness, he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. He has a name written on him, which no one knows except himself. He's clothed the robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. And the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses and from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the almighty and on his robe and his thigh. His name is written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. There it is. He's going to rule them with a rod of iron. This is Jesus. Then when he walked in Jerusalem years ago, he he was a lamb. This is him coming back as a as a lion. Now, now we don't know who's going to be elected president of the United States in 2016, but we do know who will reign on earth forever. Jesus will. It's the message of Psalm 2. Kings may try to resist, but the king is coming. That's why I entitled my message this morning, The Coming King. That's what Psalm 2 is all about. And it seems only right in verses 10 through 12 or in this psalm because they form the conclusion. They form the application. It's like, okay, Jesus is coming to rule and reign. So what? What does it mean? Well, here's what it means. I've simply called it the warning. We see earth. We see heaven. We see coronation day. And now comes the warning. In fact, I picked that right here from verse 10, which says, take warning, take heed, be warned. I want to preach this verse from the ESV because it's a bit more literal than the NAS. So it says this, Now, therefore, O kings, be wise and be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in Him. His words are addressed to the very ones who are rebelling against the Lord and His anointed. We see here, the kings be wise, O rulers of the earth, or judges of the earth. These are the same. We got kings, verse 2. We got rulers, verse 2. The same ones. He's saying, okay, you're rebelling now, but take heed. Take heed. Think about it. What are you going to do? And, and, and it, it comes to us as well, by straight by application. Though we aren't rulers, though we aren't kings, there is rebellion in our hearts. It comes to you if you're not saved, if you're not loving the Lord Jesus Christ or believing in Him. This is a warning to you. In light of the coming King, where's your allegiance going to be? Is it going to be to earthly kings? Or you await the final arrival of the anointed King? Now, now by the way, this, this is not... This is not what I rocket science, right? This is not difficult. This is not hard. This, everything flows from verse 9. In fact, that's the call of verse 10. It says, okay, think about it. Be wise. Show discernment. Be prudent. Be instructed. 
think well about verses 1 through 9 because the only path, the only way is to submit to this sovereign king and sovereign Lord. Three clear, clear applications come from these verses. They're all the same. After verse 10 basically says, think about it, get it right. Here's the application. It says, serve the Lord with fear. One. Number two, rejoice with trembling. Number three, kiss the sun. These three commands are all the same. They all speak of our, our submission to the Lord. Serve the Lord. When we serve the Lord, we are His servants doing His bidding. When we rejoice in the Lord, we're taking delight in His ways, taking delight in the King's ways. When we kiss the Son, we're showing where our allegiance lies. It lies with Jesus. Now, the only phrase that's difficult to understand here is a little bit about kiss the Son. You might think about, I guess I've, I've seen this, that today, when does that happen? Kind of the only time I see that happen is when the, the Pope frolics around his white, his white garment, right? And he's got his king, he's got his ring on his finger and people come and, and greet him. And when they, they bow down and they kiss his, his ring, sometimes they'll, they'll kneel before him. Now, don't do that to the Pope, okay? But that's the picture of kissing the sun, is taking the sovereign king, entering into the, the presence of the sovereign king and bowing and kissing his, his hand. Or maybe, remember the, the sinful woman, Luke chapter 7, who knew the grace of Jesus, how she came and kissed his feet, and, and for, for tears of joy that her sins were forgiven, and love, she was just pouring it out on his dirty feet, and as the, the dirt was sweeping down, and she took her hair and wiped it away. You should do the same. That's what this verse is calling you to. Bow. As the NAS does say, it says, do homage to the Son. Right? Bow down, lay down, go prostrate before the Son, and you worship Him as your supreme ruler. Serve Him, rejoice in Him, kiss the Son. And so the question comes, is that where you are? Are you serving, rejoicing the Son? Is this in your heart? Is this your life? Are you serving the Lord Christ or are you serving your own pleasures? You'd be foolish to try to scheme against the Lord. That's the whole point of Psalm 2. It's futile. That's why they're called in verse 1. They're vain things. Trying to scheme against the Lord. And notice there is an urgency to these words because God's anger is like a burning fuse. It's big long fuse. It goes... There's going to be a time when it all goes off. The firecracker snaps. The dynamite booms. And when it goes off, there'll be no mercy. Today's a day of mercy. Today's a day of kindness. When it goes off, the sun will come and it will shatter his enemies, the rod of iron. Shatter them like earthenware. And so I just say this, for your own well-being, so as to escape the explosion... Lay down your lives to the coming king. And I say, this is the best thing for you. Look, look at verse 12. Promises a blessing. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Taking refuge in him is the same as bowing down and serving him, right? And doesn't the New Testament talk so often about being in Christ? As we are in Christ, we are protected from the wrath of God through the blood of his son. Now, this naturally brings us back to Psalm 1. 
In fact, many have seen Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 as kind of bookends together because Psalm 1 begins with how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked nor stand in the path of sinners nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and his law he meditates day and night. He'll be like this tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither and whatever he does, he prospers. The blessed one is the one who avoids the counsel of the wicked. Avoids the the scheming of the unrighteous scoffers. And the same message comes in in verse 12. Blessed is the one who avoids those things and takes his refuge in God. Blessed is the one who meditates on God and his ways, refusing the counsel, the vain schemings of the unrighteous. For your own good, I exhort you to kiss the Son. Pay homage to this coming King. Worship Him. Rejoice in Him. Because Jesus Christ is our hope. And He brings a great blessing. It's the message of Psalm 1. I look forward to more Psalms in the future. They're really rich, right? Let's pray. Oh, Father, I pray that You would find us here at Rock Valley Bible Church bowing the knee to Jesus. He is our only hope. He is our only strength. Lord, I pray that that we would find our joy and rest there. Thank you that Jesus Christ came to die for rebel sinners. He came to die for those kings and rulers who were musing and thinking and plotting against you. Because we know that while, while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we're your enemies, you died for us. You showed us grace. And in that, God, may we look and rejoice. Father, and may we, may we truly love you and serve you for all that you have done for us. God, I pray also for those who are here today who don't know Christ, who are lost in their sins, who are shaking their fists at you, wanting to live life their own way. Lord, I pray you would take your word in Psalm 2, Penetrate deep in the heart and break them and show them of the love of Christ. That's mercy leads us to repentance. And I pray this day of mercy you'd lead them to repentance. We pray you'd help us and strengthen us. We continue to just go through some of these psalms. God, that we make a, a richer, fuller um, desire and understanding for, for your heart. As David was a man after your own heart. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.